This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. Here on Rally Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Well, we've got someone coming on the show. We're not going to, we're just going to, no further ado, we're just going to introduce her. Good morning, Erica Harvey. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Do you know? You <laughs> must have special skills. Why do you say that? Because I have no idea who you are. <laughs> I have no idea why I'm interviewing. Other than this, I have these three ladies who help me and yeah. look after me. They sort of rotate. I'm very lucky. I think Hoover gets a short straw and has to help me that week. <laughs> and they've said, oh, my goodness, you've got to have Erica on. And here you are. Here so I I'm going to explore it. Now, I detect an American accent. Yes, you're right. You're from the United States of America. Yes, I am. Do you know I regard the United States of America as the greatest country on earth? Do you? I do. Oh. I don't believe that there has ever been a greater country. Wow. I don't believe that there's ever been a greater history of a country. Anyway, tell me you where did you where where did you grow up in in Tennessee? I don't know much of the state. So I grew up. Uh, I was actually born up north, like in New Jersey. Um, but when I was really young, my family moved down to Tennessee in a place called Chattanooga. Chattanooga, which, what a name! <laughs> yeah, which ironically, when I met my husband, who's um, from Tauranga, his dad. When I first met him, he was like Chattanooga, and he knew the Chattanooga Choo Choo song. Yeah, yeah, everyone does. And I had no idea. Pardon me, Roy. That's it. I actually used to sing. So the Chattanooga Choo Choo now is like a restaurant, and the train's still there. And so when I was growing up, um, my one of my first jobs was a singing waitress at the Chattanooga Choo Choo. <laughs> How about that? You're famous. I should have known about you before you came on my show. So what happened to your music? Uh, well, I found a lump in my neck and I had gone to the doctor for it, but they said, because of my age, I think at the time I found it, I was 24. And they said, look, because of your age, it's probably nothing. It's probably a thyroid goiter. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And they said, oh, you probably won't need anything about it. And then my, as I was singing, my voice started to change and I just felt like something was wrong. And so, uh, I was about 26 and I wanted going back to the doctor and just saying, Hey, look, for my own peace of mind, can you biopsy it? And they tried to talk me out of it because it's quite painful. <laughs> um, and I did some blood tests and I remember my bloods came back and I was talking to my dad and my dad was like, you know, looking them up somewhere. And he was a bit concerned about some of the bloods and I had gotten this biopsy and the guy had said to me, Hey, look, there's a want and a need. You're either going to want to get it out just because, you know, it looked, if I tilted my neck, you could see it. Um, or you're going to need, he's like, but you probably won't need to get it out. I'm sure it's nothing. And so I remember I was at, I was working at Dell and yeah, my phone rang and I answered the phone and um, he told me over the phone while I was at work and he just said, Hey, Erica, do you remember the want and the need? I was like, yeah. He's like, you're going to need. And I was like, what? And he's like, you've got cancer. And I was like, huh? And it just, he told me over the phone while I was at work 
And I just remember my uh, my husband, Dan, was in New Zealand. And I just remember ringing him saying like, and it happened to be April Fool's Day in New Zealand. Oh, dear. And so oh, dear. I'm trying to call him and tell him. And he's like, is this a joke? And I was like, this is a terrible joke. <laughs> you know, and um, so anyway, he got on a plane and um, yeah, flew back to the States. And we went and saw my oncologist and... Yeah, they wound up, um, the surgery was quite intense. So I've got a big scar all the way around my neck and um, they had to remove 54 lymph nodes out of my face. So I get a lot of lymphedema where I get fluid buildup in my face, depending on, you know, if I'm supposed to be jumping on this trampoline, but I've been pregnant. <laughs> so I couldn't really do that. So I, I can see why, <laughs> I can see why, hey, didn't you got a lot going on? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know you had that many lymph nodes, let alone you could have them removed and still stand up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all just means that fluid just can build up there. So you've got to, if you walk a lot or moving, but like obviously when it's cold in the winter time or, you know, or you're pregnant or whatever. Um, yeah. So anyway, they removed it. I was quite lucky. They Are you thought, pregnant now? No, he's four months old. I just had the baby <laughs> during this whole, basically I had the baby in May um, and yeah, went straight into campaign time. I wasn't going to run in this election, um, but my husband and I oh, we're going to come to the election. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still going to come to the election because this is amazing to me that you're doing this. So, um, and the cancer all went when they cut all your lymph nodes off. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they took it all out. They cut so many out because they were looking for clear margins. They had thought that it would have spread because of the misdiagnosis the first time, but, um, and they took them out as a precaution, but they were all clean. So I had clean margins. Um, and yeah, so I just, I have to get checked. I get my bloods done all the time and and things like that. So, but my voice changed. And obviously after you have a significant surgery in your throat, um, yeah, I mean, my, my singing voice isn't what it was at all. I mean, I'm a, you know, decent, probably karaoke singer now, but before I was like, you know, a real singer. <laughs> Erica, you got into politics because of your daughter. How did that happen? Uh, it was, it's quite interesting. Um, so I was working for a big corporate um, called, uh, called Gartner. So we did like um, IT research and advisory services for some of New Zealand's like largest companies. And when she was going through the process and once she was diagnosed, um, I left that my corporate job um, just so I could be home with her because I now started to realize that she would actually need a lot more help and focus. And I thought she was diagnosed quite young. So she was two years old when we got her Oh, diagnosis. really? Yeah. Oh, really? Because normally, you know, people can be quite even adults. Yeah. Well, hers, it was a quite a sad story, to be fair. Um, she developed fine like every other child. And then uh, she got sick and wound up in the hospital that happened. And um, I was going to say that happened twice. Um, and the second time, she had changed quite a lot, but we thought that um, that the change was just her, you know, getting over, you know, being unwell. And um, and then I slowly started to notice things like her eyes had gone inward. And I tell the story about how it's quite sad. It feels like one day you go to bed and then you wake up and the kid that you had has been gone and replaced with a different child. Um, and not that the, the child was, you know, better or worse, either child, but just that you know, she never spoke again. Uh, she started to have violent outbursts. She was smashing her head on the concrete. Um, 
any type of lights would bother her. Um, she like her eyesight, her eyes had gone inward and I just started to notice all these different things. And I remember talking to my dad and he just said, you know, have you, have you thought about autism? He's like, I hate to say that, you know, I don't want to. And I just said, I actually have. So I started that process and because I was traveling a lot with my job and stuff and my husband um, is a fisherman. <laughs> so our life was, was quite um, hard because we both were quite busy. Um, so I wound up leaving that corporate job and just focusing on, on Piper going through that, that process of finding out. And I remember um, my husband saying to me, oh, Erica, you know, she doesn't have, she doesn't have autism. You know, she's very similar to me. I'm quite awkward. And, <laughs> and um he goes, how bad will it feel if you find out that she's actually just fine? And I just thought, well, it won't feel bad at all <laughs> because I just want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can. And um, I remember sitting in the specialist appointment that I had to make. And um, he says to me, uh, I calls another boy from outside and the boy comes in and he's like, you know, I'll call him Tommy. Hey, Tommy. Tommy's like, yeah. He's like, what'd you do this weekend? And Tommy tells him, you know, in like a little, you know, kid's voice of what they've done. And uh, he's like, okay, all right, thanks. And he, and then Tommy leaves. So then Piper's playing in the corner. And and I said, I don't think she has autism because when I speak, she looks at me. And I heard that kids with autism don't look at you. And she looks at me and he goes, let me show you the difference. And he's like, hey, Piper. And she looks at him. And then she goes back to playing. And, um, and then he talks to her again. And he says, she looks at you because you make a noise. And I was like, what? He's like, she's not genuinely engaging like Tommy did. And I just remember thinking, oh God. Because this whole time I kind of thought maybe she didn't because she was looking at me when I would talk to her. So I remember um, he says, look, she's, I'm pretty sure she is. But what we do is we send, refer them to an MDAT team, which is a team in the hospital. And it's a speech and language therapist and all the stuff. And then they work together and jointly come up with a diagnosis. And so... I come, came home to my, I remember putting her in the car and I was just staring at her in the back seat. It makes me quite emotional every time I talk about it because I remember it so well. And I just remember saying to her, Piper, look at me, look at me, you know, like, come on. And, um, cause she used to look at me and, um, yeah, she didn't. She just would say, zika, 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 zika. and, um, called my husband and I just said, oh, I think she has autism. And I'm like, and I don't know what this means, but I know that it means she's going to need a lot of help and we've got to figure out how to how to communicate to her. And so I had to leave my job and, um, and that was quite hard because we had just bought our first house and um, I was the main earner at the time. And so it was quite stressful and scary. So we started our own business and um, to better look after our daughter so we could be more flexible. I was going through a lot of therapies with her and, you know, just for us to try to figure out how to get her to speak. Cause a lot of her issues were she, her diagnosis came back that she was nonverbal autism that mm -hmm. she had dyspraxia, global development delay, and um, and then later something called PDA, which is pathological demand avoidance, which is a tricky piece because it means basically that she takes anything as a demand. So if I said, get your shoes, she would have a huge meltdown and it would just be, her whole day would just be like, our whole day would be off. But if I said, hey, do you know where your shoes are? <laughs> totally different response. So it's about learning how to change uh, how you're asking things and how you're actually parenting. So it was a big learning curve. So we started our new company. Um, we were doing really cool stuff, long line fishing. 
um, selling fish to like Michelin star restaurants. And we had big chefs coming from all over the world uh, to Toranga. My husband was taking them fishing. They were doing amazing cooking videos. And it was a really cool, sustainable, like awesome company. We, we loved it. And then the city council um, decided to um, sell off this area called the Marine Precinct. And they gave put out a memorandum. And in the memorandum, it said that they would be building all of these facilities for um, the marine industry so that they didn't have to purchase land. And so we were basically told we didn't have to purchase any land in this development sale to operate. And I started working. And I remember my husband coming home and he's like, man, the space is really small. And he puts this document on the table. And I looked at the document and I thought, well, this is weird. There's not enough space in that area to do all of these things. Like, that's impossible. So <laughs> I started to like look into it and um, go down, you know, go down to the the precinct and was asking questions. We were having meetings with council and, you know, then they had something like a travel lift and that actually was against the, t- the way that the tidal flow was and there was no bumpers. It just, the whole thing wasn't designed right. It was just weird. So I just raised an issue because I thought maybe they don't know. <laughs> And what was effectively happening, which is how I got in, into politics, um, is that they had put out like a false memorandum <laughs> and they weren't going to actually deliver any of those things. And what it looked like was that they were trying to basically push out an entire industry that had been in Toranga for, I don't know, generations, right? Fishing and anyone that had to deal with um, anything. And it looked like the plan was to bring in just super yachts into Toranga. And so um, I started like, you know, because I came from a corporate, I just thought, oh, well, they must not know this. (laughs) It must be an overlook. It's your first reaction to this, isn't it? Yeah. Because I mean, why would you just put 25 small businesses out of business? Like when you look at the turnover that these fishing companies actually bring in to the local economy. It's significant. I mean, we refit our boats. Like there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining boats. There's jobs, there's fuel, there's like a lot of stuff. So I think I just thought this doesn't make any sense, especially I also thought there should be a law where if you've got generations of an industry, I didn't actually think that it was legal to just get rid of them. (laughs) And maybe that's how, I mean, I'm not sure. So I, um, I got involved just thinking it was going to be a quick thing. Had a meeting. Uh, they were like, oh, yeah, no, no, this can happen, blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, can you halt the tender process? Because it looks like we need to bid on land. And I'd like to pull together a bunch of different people and for us to um, jointly make a co-op with all of these small businesses so that we can actually have a place to unload fish, you know, put gear on and off, get fuel, get ice, and we can all share this space. And... um they so can you please just halt the tender process because your memorandum's incorrect and we actually need to relook at this now or we're all going to be out of business. So that's actually how I got involved with New Zealand first. So I went to National and was trying to get them to look into it because it was two hundred and twenty million. What year was this, Erica? This would have been like two thousand and sixteen. Okay, I think yeah, about twenty sixteen it was. And so um, is when I started it. I don't know when I approached National. It might have been like a year into it. I was just like, well, I need some help. Like, this is bizarre. Um, They kept going forward with the plan and I was having all these meetings and nothing was changing. I tried to get a lawyer at at that time and no one would represent us. They kept saying it was a conflict. And I was thinking, 
what in the heck? Like, how can people actually raise a concern like this? The 25 businesses who were with me all of a sudden started getting threatened, basically saying if they, you know, were with me, the quota packages would be cut and all this stuff that was coming from industry and all different types of ways and play. It was, it was like, I was just, I said to my husband, this is really weird. <laughs> He's like, no, no, I think you're looking into it. And I was like, I don't think I am. Why won't they stop? Like they keep talking, we keep having conversations, but nothing's changing. Yes, it was quite spooky. (laughs) Um, And um, so anyway, I went to National and I spoke to Simon at the time and I just said like, hey, you know, and and he put in an email and stuff. And because he was your local MP. Yeah, at the time. So he put in Mm -hmm. an email to the mayor at the time and kind of came back and they just said, oh, I swap these letters. Um, You know, I'm incorrect. And there is, you know, basically saying that what I'm saying is untrue. So they were just like, oh, there's nothing we can do. And I'm like, but they're lying. <laughs> He's like, well, I mean, you know. So then I went to, I walked, someone told me to go to New Zealand first. And I just thought, nah, like those, I didn't, you know, I just kind of thought they were for older people. And I didn't think they, I don't know why I thought this at the time, but this is just what I thought. <laughs> um, and so anyway, I walked in to um, the MP at the time in Toronga's office. And I said, hey, uh, I don't know if this is the right place. And someone's told me to come in here. I'm not sure how you can help. And at the time they were in opposition anyway. And um, I said, you know, here's what we've got going on. And he was like, I was on the council when this was discussed and this isn't what it was supposed to be. Oh, really? Now, who was this MP? It was Clayton Mitchell. Okay. And so he's like, yeah, I was on the council when this went through. This is not actually the development that it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be for. And I said, well, it doesn't look like that. So I bring all this information in and he was like, uh this is crazy. He's like, how have you approached this? And so he said, look, we're in opposition. There's not much I can do, but I can help you navigate. That's actually where it seems to be the issue is. And most people don't actually know how to navigate the system. And I thought, that's what I need. I don't need you to do anything. I need you to tell me how I can navigate. <laughs> and so we had this long chat and he just said, um, like, show me your... So I was showing him my emails, right? And he's like, well, the first thing you're doing wrong... <laughs> is you're telling a bunch of people with big egos that they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. And that actually is not going to get you anywhere. And I was like, but they are wrong. He's like, I know, but you need to leave them there. <laughs> you don't tell them that they're wrong. So I thought, okay, okay. Um, and so we started, like, he started just kind of giving me some advice on how I can start to make traction. And I remember um, through their office, a consultant had come through and this guy, I guess they had talked about me. And so they put me in touch with this consultant and he was gung-ho. He's like, you know, look, I'll help you. Um, and so he came in and because a lot of the issues I was running into was, well, you have a vested interest in this. So we're not listening to you kind of thing, right? Even though I was representing 25 other pe- other businesses. But then also at the time, what started happening is as these businesses were getting too afraid to speak up, I became like the sole person on this like battle all alone, <laughs> even though quietly they were all really happy to see me continue Jeez. forward publicly. They now couldn't help me. So then the council saying, Oh, well, why aren't these people here? And I'm like, well, because you guys have all threatened them. <laughs> they can't be here. <laughs> it's a great uh, feeling in politics where everyone says, you know, you're, you're sitting in your trench and everyone says, you know, let's make a run for it and you go over the top and you're running furiously towards the barbed wire and then you look around and you realize you're the only one. <laughs> yeah, it was very much like that. And then you would hear like, my husband was like, you've got to stop. People are talking about you. Um, I was down at, you know, the wharf and someone was saying that um, you're, we're mad because our family didn't get land. 
And I'm like, oh, that is untrue. He's like, I know, but they're, you know, Erica, I, they're talking about you. They're saying mean things about you. And I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like, this is unacceptable. Like, what are we going to do? Because essentially what was going to happen is we just bought a new house. Our daughter was just diagnosed with autism. Um, this business paid our bills. And if we lost this company, we lost everything. And then what are we supposed to do? So the only thing you have left is to fight, right? Mm. And so, yeah, so I fought in that. And then I got to the point where I started to realize that I was having meetings for meetings and nothing was working. And then clearly there were some different interests in there. And I think there were some, probably some deals that had gone on, you know, like, I'm not sure. It was just very, everything kind of said, it is not what it seems. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly and, what you mean. Yeah. And so um, the consultant was great. He was saying the same thing. It's not what it seems. He was going even further than I went to find out even more information. And he would come back and go, this is dodgy. <laughs> He's like, you have a case. So we filed complaints to MB. Um, I filed complaints with um, everyone like in government and um, even Shane Jones. Like I had this uh, like idea that maybe the PGF fund could come in and um, invest in the Marine precinct so we could have a co-op and then we could all at least work in one area. And then if they wanted to do this you know, super yacht thing, then they can do that in another area. And I had this idea of putting in like, you know, like a fisherman's wharf where people can come down and buy fresh fish off of these sustainable fishing boats and, you know, like actually bring people into the Tauranga city, right? The CBD, because it's kind of like a, a dying place at the moment. And um, anyway, all these conversations, um, you know, the council just weren't into it. Um, and so, I thought that election came up in 2019. And so I just I said to my husband, it's way cheaper for me just to run. <laughs> and he was like, oh God, <laughs> Erica, we have so much going on. And I'm like, I'm like, I can't give up now. Like I've just spent, and this was what, 2016, 2017, 2018. We're now in 2019. It's now become my full-time job, like basically fighting local government. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't walk away now. <laughs> so. Uh put in my name. And, um, and I think during this time, Rodney, I was speaking to someone who was a Western Bay counselor, Margaret, and they actually spoke Margaret to me. Murray. We've had Margaret Murray on the show. <laughs> Have you? Well, her and um, she put me in touch with you in 2019. And I was actually looking for these emails because um, I had come to you to say, look, what I should tell listeners that um, I had completely forgotten and not connected the names. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's easy to, I guess I'm quite, <laughs> back then, I mean, it just didn't seem like anybody remembered. <laughs> no, it was just an email, right? Yeah. Well, well, I think we actually spoke on the phone as well. Okay. Um, but, but, you know, at the time you probably didn't know how to help and I probably didn't know how, I, what I needed. I think she just said, call him. And then I was called you and we both were like, uh, <laughs> so I put my name in that, um, local body election and I, I did my announcement. So friends of mine were putting together this, um, the mayoral debate for that election. And they said, Hey, do you want to be the speaker? And at the time I wasn't sure if I was going to run. And so they said, look, why don't you go in and talk about the issue? These issues are happening all across the city where um, things are being promised. They're not having true engagement. No one's listening to the public. So why don't you come in and ask the first question and we'll give you five minutes and you can lay out the issue that you're facing. And I thought, yeah, okay. So I got up in this mayoral debate. <laughs> I remember like writing this speech. It was my first speech. I'd never actually spoken publicly um, like this. Um, and I remember, you know, talking about the Marine precinct. And as I'm going through what had happened, you hear like, 
<laughs> the gasps in the audience. And and I had had press, there was, you know, stories. What, the, what yeah. do you think was motivating the gasps? They were horrified that you were saying this or yeah, they didn't were, know. They, were they agreeing with you or mortified by what had happened? Yeah, they were a surprised that they had never heard of any of this going on. Yeah. Um, two, when I started talking about um, the plan to move forward and that I had had, um, that I wanted an investigation into the council for not listening to the public and talking about our business. I think they were just horrified that this was going on and no one even knew in the public. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it's not, there was press, I had gotten media out there and we had done some stories, but it just highlighted to me how you, as a, a you're only really interested in things that affect yourself. And so, yes. you know, you read something about the Marine precinct, most people are like, oh, that doesn't affect me. You know, so you go to the next thing. Yes. So this highlighted a lot of things to me, which is how, I guess, government and the public should be working better together because actually it what happens is you raise a story, it goes, and then it dies. And then you have to keep trying to find different ways to raise the same issue. And if no one's interested anymore, it dies. And nobody, you fight this lonely battle all by yourself, right? And I do think that there's a lot of um, ways we can engage with people better, but um, especially when it's your own money, like if, well, you know, I've, uh, we're a business owner. So if I had different departments in my company hemorrhaging money, I would want to know. <laughs> so the public also probably wanted to know. Um, so they just couldn't believe it was happening. They couldn't believe I couldn't get a lawyer. They couldn't believe that the council kept moving forward with it. They couldn't believe that it didn't stop the tender process. So um, I asked this long question, Gave this like little um, spiel. And then at the end, I just said, so if you're running for mayor, how can you, um, like, what can you do to make sure that what I've faced doesn't happen to anyone else? And um, and then I got off the stage. I remember just trembling. I was so scared and so nervous because I just knew, like, it was just this awkward feeling where you're that girl for four years that's been in like a pain. And now all of a sudden you're at the mayoral debate where they're all trying to keep their jobs. And you're basically saying, all of you guys are terrible. <laughs> Um, and then I sat down and then the next day I just said to my husband, I'm going to do it. I'm going to run. And, um, it was much cheaper. <laughs> it was like, what, a couple hundred bucks, I think. And, um, much cheaper than a lawyer and much cheaper than the consultant that I had to hire. And so, yeah, I put my name in the 2019 election for the Todonga city council. And, um, that was interesting because I had never run in an election before. And so, you have to do your 150 words. And I didn't know if it was in first person or third person or what I was supposed to do. So um, I sent two versions and just said, hey, can you use the one that's appropriate, right? For, um, you know, for the booklet that comes out. Anyway, I was doing really good. People were getting nervous I was going to get in. Um, and uh, and there was a lot of support. And I was so surprised because I had been so used to no one supporting me in this thing. <laughs> um, to a lot of people in the public actually um, being very supportive. And anyway, the booklet comes out for voting. And would you believe that in this document, everyone's is like, hi, I'm so-and-so, you know, blah, blah, blah. And mine is like, Erica Harvey is a fighter for the people. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> and I rung the council. I'm like, whoa. And it was digital at the time. So it hadn't gone into a booklet. I just said, I've just gotten this. You guys have published the wrong 150 words they said oh we're sorry we can't change it and I was like what oh my god <laughs> and so then I but then I heard from the mayor at the time that 
or who was someone who was running that they actually changed his. So he's like, they can change it. They changed mine. And I thought, well, what the heck? They're not changing mine. So I went out and I started just trying to drop my. And this is this is the council civil servants. <laughs> yeah, this is in 2019, and I was horrified because I just I sounded so arrogant because it was in third person. <laughs> um, and so anyway, I was trying to drop off all these flyers and I was trying to do all the stuff to get my actual you know out and from me, and um, yeah. Anyway, everyone thought that I was in had this in the bag, and. Um, I lost by a very small margin. And um, and I just remember after you're hustling so hard that election and then you find out you lose <laughs> and then you go to bed and then you are like, because everything's so busy during an election, then you're just like, your life feels so different after that. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I, um, so that was 2019. And then, um, and that council actually wound up being uh, well, all over the news, I guess, because then commissioners got brought in, right? Like, so they couldn't, they couldn't work well together. And um, yeah, and so that turned out a whole different way too. So it might have been a lucky break, or maybe if I was there, I could have actually helped amalgamate the two sides. I don't know. Um, but what it did happen is it meant that all that work that I've been doing um, when that MP was going to be, um, he, he wanted, you know, to get out of politics and start spending time with his family and stuff. Uh, he came to me and asked, uh, if I'd be interested in standing for New Zealand first in 2020. And I just thought, oh, God, like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like a big, you know. And so we had a lot of discussions. And at the time, I was quite involved in the party at that stage. I had been the chairperson of their local electorate. And, um, you know, and he just said, look, you've got, because also through this, so my, going back to your initial thing, my stories are weird because everything intertwined. So Piper's diagnosed with autism. We're about to lose our business that we had to start. So that's how I got involved in local body. But also at the same time, my daughter then turns five because of the time that it took for me to go through that local body stuff, right? She was in Montessori full time um, and they were doing great. So she was there from nine to five. And um, once we got her routines down and we're figuring out how to, you know, work with Piper and I was going through all these trainings with her, she was doing great. So she turns five, it's time for her to go to school. So I go to my local school and um, I remember walking into there and they said, oh, look, because your daughter has ORS funding, which is the ongoing resources scheme, which is very hard to get. They only save this funding for like kids who are really, really, have really, really complex high needs, right? So that's actually how hard she was at the time. Um, and they basically tell me at my local school that uh, most parents with kids who have, you know, autism uh, pick their kids up before lunch. And I was like, what? Like, how can I work? Because at the time I was doing some consulting and stuff. I thought, well, I, I have to go to work. Like, I have a mortgage to pay. So how am I supposed to do that? And they said, oh, I mean, or, you know, she can stay here, but she won't have any help. Uh, she won't have any assistance because, well, we could file with the board and see if they want to give more money. And I... And you and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I don't want to cause this school to go broke because of my kid. And then you suddenly feel like you're a burden onto a school and that she's going to be unsafe. She couldn't toilet herself. So she needed help going to the bathroom. She was still in nappies at five. Um, you know, she couldn't, she wasn't verbal. And she was this cute little kid with these blonde curls and these big blue eyes. And oh, I remember yeah. just thinking to myself, like heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, how can she not go to school? And it was, and she had been in Montessori full time, nine to five, no issues. They loved her. Montessori so, is wonderful, is it not? 
Oh, it was great. And you know, it was a best start. So Chloe Wright, you know, sadly just passed away. Mm. Um, you know, it was, it was an amazing Montessori. And um, yeah, so then this is how I got involved in education. And um, so I, we obviously don't send her to our local school. And I remember coming home to my husband crying, just saying, what am I supposed to, <laughs> what are we supposed to do? We can't send our, she can't go to school with other kids. Like, how are we? And it was just this and then I'm like reading and it's like, well, they're not allowed to do that. And I'm like thinking, yeah, but why would you send your school to someplace where you don't feel that your kid is going to be looked after or loved or protected? There were so many kids running around. I just thought, I just imagined her being like all alone in this sea of children, you know, like getting bullied or something because she couldn't speak like them or wasn't acting like them or, you know, we already had issues where we would be at a playground and you'd see families because she would say like, zika, 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 zika. And she would look at her hands in front of her face. And you'd already get the judgments of parents or, you know, I was at a neighbor's house. like, And my daughter was trying to engage with this boy. He was like five and she was a bit older. And the dad, I guess, didn't realize I was the mother. And he says to this little boy, she's a bit weird. I don't worry. You don't have to play with her. Just ignore her. And I just looked at him and I said, that's my daughter. And he, oh, oh, I, I didn't mean it like that. And I said, that's why kids grow up to be like your kid's going to grow up to be. Because you're already choosing, yeah. you're already saying to him that she should, he should judge her. You know, like you've already, and that's actually, I think a lot of the issues we have today is that parents are actually telling kids, oh, well, they're weird or don't play with them or you don't have to. I know she's weird or, you know, that's not actually what it should be about. Um so anyway, it was a big journey. So I wound up, uh, the Ministry of Education were also involved in our case because she had ORS funding. And I told them about the school and I was just devastated. And they said, look, there's one school and they do really well with kids like like your daughter. And But it's about 20 minutes away from your house. They're about to zone, but they haven't zoned yet. Let me get you an appointment. So I go to the school. It's a mainstream school. Um, they are a lower decile school. So they are used to dealing with, you know, different types of behaviors. And um, at the time, the principal, she had a a granddaughter with autism or a grandson. And um, so I show up at the school and uh, the deputy principal at the time was my husband's teacher from Pies Pa. (laughs) And so it was quite crazy. And she was also something called a Cinco, which is a special education needs coordinator. And we sit down with her and she's like, you know, Daniel, oh my gosh, you know, and I was in tears just saying like the issue, like that we can't find a school for her and um, how she has so much to give. And, you know, and she just says, look, don't worry. So she takes us on a, a tour around the school. She shows us this little room they've got called the Fuddy Manaki, which is basically where um, children who need a bit of help go into this room and they get their one-on-one help. Right. And then they're put back in the normal classroom and with a teacher aid with kids, just like, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, uh, you know, children in the school. And um, she started that school. uh, Like we had to come pick her up. There'd be times where she would strip off all of her clothes when she would have a meltdown. And we'd get a phone call saying your daughter's naked in the corner. (laughs) And we would have to run there. And I remember Dan grabbing her, putting a blanket over her and us having to rush her. And she was screaming and kicking the car. And um, it, it was such a hard time in our life. I just remember saying to Dan, like, how is this our life? You know, like you have all these um, hopes and dreams when you get pregnant and you have all these um, ideas of the kind of life you'll have. And then when it's different, um, you don't really know how 
like how you're going to make it through it because it just feels so hard. And um, so we get her into the school and then I start to, the principal at the time, because I was doing consulting and I was doing this stuff in local government, kind of said, hey, look, can you come in and look at our um, our books with us? Because we're actually in a really bad place. And so I went in and we looked at everything. And long story short, because I could talk forever, is that um, the school was going bankrupt. So it was about over $200,000 in the hole. And the the reason was because it had over 20 children with additional learning needs at this one school because all of the schools in the surrounding areas aren't taking them and they're creatively excluding these kids. So and now they're doing them. that, they're doing that illegally. Right. But even though it's illegal, like, I mean, I remember when going through this, I was just doing research when I decided to run in that 2020 election with New Zealand first. And I wound up going to the police and I just said, Hey, question. Cause I was dealing with another child and parents started to come to me about, you know, what was going on. And so I started advocating in this space around education and how we can change the system to, you know, help all children actually have an education together. And um, I went to the police to say, hey, look, um, the school's not letting this kid go to school here. And they said, well, what do you mean to do about it? I said, well, I don't know. It's illegal. <laughs> and they said, oh, that's not us. It's the ministry. So I go to the ministry, you know, and, and obviously they they don't know what to do either because the issue is funding. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, the ministry also. So, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a very complex issue if you don't know. So um, I started getting quite involved in that local body politics in 2017, just to go back, maybe 2018. When, no, it would have been 2017. So 2017 happens um, and Jacinda gets in right um, with, with Winston and um, and the reason in 2017 that they came up with an agreement is because National didn't want to negotiate with Winston and they had a bunch of policies that they wanted to see. And I think that's what people forget is that uh, New Zealand First is its own political party. <laughs> we have policies that we want to get across the line for our own members, you know. And so we look to see who we can actually get policies across with. And they had some really good policies. So one of them was rolling out like learning support coordinators, which would actually help kids with additional learning needs. Um, it would give a funded role for a school, which means it would take off that burden off of their operational grant. So some of these like really great ideas um, came from New Zealand First and when Labor did this coalition, right? So 2017, I'm not really involved in um, this type of politics. I'm sorry, I've jumped around. But I wound up writing a letter because I'm going through this stuff with the school. The school's writing letters to um, government for a long time saying, hey, look, we're going to go broke. We're going to go bankrupt. We can't keep doing this. The Ministry of Education is referring all these children to our schools and we love them and we will take them. But other schools need to do their part or you've got to come up with a different funding model because we're going broke. And we're only going broke because we're following the law of inclusion in the Education Act. <laughs> so I remember just as a consultant going, them saying, can you help us raise, raise this issue? Because we have written so many letters to government, no one's listening. And I just remember saying, yeah, so I'm, I started it like a normal, um, you know, like a consultant was very, uh, you know, dear so-and-so, you know. <laughs> and I remember sitting in my office thinking about this letter and how I was going to try and get people to know what was going on in, in the education space with kids with uh, learning disabilities and additional learning needs and physical disabilities. That There's just a wide range of issues. And I sat in my office one night. I remember it was really late. I probably had some wine. <laughs> and I thought, 
I'm going to write a letter to her like I, like as a mom, you know, not as a consultant, not as someone that's working with this school to try to help them. I'm going to write it as a mom. So I wrote a Dear Jacinda letter and it was basically like, you know, Dear Jacinda, I was at the top of my career like you are right now when I found out that I had, you know, was pregnant. And I basically go through and and explain in a very vulnerable and open way what it's like to be a parent of a child with additional needs, right? That we all enter parenthood the same. We get a pregnancy test. We're very excited about it. We dream about the things we're going to do with our kids and all the places we'll go and who they'll grow up to become. And and then one and day- the life, And the life they will have. Yeah. And the life that you will have together. And, and then, and then suddenly you find out that the life is different than you imagined. And not only that, you're all alone because you meet people on this journey and they'll say, I can't imagine that. Oh, she's not that autistic. Oh, she's not that. Oh, well, where is she on the spectrum? It's like, oh my gosh, (laughs) you know, or, um, you know, they, because usually these kids like, children like Piper are really good at masking. So they mask really well that they're fitting in, right? And then they come home and just lose it. <laughs> and that's the stuff that people don't see, right? So it's a very complex thing. So I write her this letter and I decide that as I send it to her office, I sent it to every single media outlet at the same time. And it got picked up. And then that was when everything started to change for the school and also, I started to get this like crazy fire in my belly about, oh my God, maybe I can help change this. Because I didn't realize at the time I went through it, what the impact was for schools. I only knew what the impact was for myself. I didn't know the reason why it happened. I had assumed at the time it was just because she was too hard and no one wanted to deal with her. You know, like that's how you think. And then you go, oh, wait a minute. Or they say like, follow the money. <laughs> um well, there's no money. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so then that started my whole journey into education. So when that MP asked me if I would run in um, local bot or in that big election in 2020, he was like, you can have a voice in in this area of education. And I just thought, oh, my God. And that was the that was a thing for me. I didn't want to be a politician. Like I ran in local body because I was tired of not being heard, and I was tired of seeing the same issues happen in across different sectors and different you know departments of the council. And I wanted to make it better. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm in now in this education space, and it's like, hey, look, you can actually make a difference. And I just thought, oh, okay. And I went back and forth for a long time, and. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's that's basically how he sold it to me was you can be a voice in this space for other parents, for other families. And, um, you know, and maybe, you know, you can have influence on changing this the model. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll give it a go. And so I ran in 2020. Obviously, we know the outcome of that. <laughs> um, and and I, and I said I wouldn't run again. And instead, I wound up um, thinking because I come from a consulting background, I, I love business models and you and I talked about, you know, music and stuff. And I think my husband and I have talked about this because I went from being quite musical, which is quite creative. Right. And I think what I've done in hindsight is that I've taken the creativity I used to get from music and I funneled it into business by, you know, when I was a consultant, I was looking at a lot of startups and toying with different business models and trying to find different, um, you know, different ideas so you can find a, a problem. And because I have a background in technology as well, 
you can, uh, what I loved about it is you can find a big issue and then you can pull all sorts of different people around and you can come up with a solution and then you can use technology to solve it. And, um, and so I really like sitting around a table with all sorts of people who think differently than me. And that's a huge part of innovation is that. And so when you get into this 2020 stuff, I was thinking, when the heck is happening? <laughs> we used to be able to uh, appreciate everyone who thought differently. Like there was always that term, like think outside the box, you know, and then 2020 comes and now it's like, no, 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 only think in the box. Don't look outside the box. Don't, you know, and so there was this like crazy huge shift that was happening in that 2020 election. And um, after everything had finished and obviously New Zealand first was out, I just thought to myself, there's got to be a way that I can give the people a platform to con- to continue to look at politics, but in a different way. And so I um, I came up with this concept called Lobby for Good, and um, which I, uh, ironically has just been hacked um, <laughs> this weekend. So I'm trying to see if we can recover the pages. But anyway, um, and what Lobby for Good was, was I learned a lot about lobbying going through all the stuff. See, I didn't realize, and I think people think the word lobbying is an American term. Um, but New Zealand is one of the only countries, uh, in the world that has zero, zero lobbying regulations. And Mm. so (laughs) I found that fascinating when I was running in 2020. Um, I think I sat in a course at the university of Waikato around, um, lobbying and lobbying regulations. And I was sitting there learning everything. And I thought, oh my God, this is what is happening. And because there's no regulations, then the public don't actually know who's meeting with who and you know where things are coming from, right? So I came up with this concept called Lobby for Good. And A, it was to help the public learn more about lobbying, highlight that uh, there have been people that have wanted to change the lobbying industry in New Zealand, but they haven't been able to get it through and um, figure out a way where I could almost create like this, almost like a political, it ran like a political party, right? Like you would have... Uh, different people in the organization who all were specialized in different portfolios, right? So you'd have someone who's focused on farming and agriculture and their job would be to go sit down with the farming and agricultural, you know, entities and look at ways that government can do things better and come up with solutions, come back to lobby for good. We could put it up together, put together a lobby, try to get public support and, um, you know, and run with it. But obviously 2020 happened and then um, we, yeah, like it's just been a really hard thing because I wound up, going to go for investment. But then when you go look for outside investment and something like that, it's quite easy to... um, (laughs) It it would uh, hinder my ability to do the things that I believe it should do, which is that it should just focus on the issues that the people have, right? Um, And when anybody has a vested interest in it, it can, you know, cloud what it is. And even if there is no bad things going on. It can just give a bad picture. So I was funding it myself, which was quite expensive to do. And so, um, so that was something that I actually was saying to my husband, um, you know, it should carry on. So no matter if I, if, you know, when we do get in this time um, and whether I get in or not, you know, this, I want it to continue because I think there's real value in the community being able to have someplace. Cause that's what I wanted. Like when I was fighting local government and, even navigating central government, what there wasn't was a place I could go to to say, now what? (laughs) You know, and Mm. you can't do that without finding a lawyer, getting a consultant. And so lobby for good was kind of the, the now what, you know? So if there's a big issue and you can get enough people to say, this is something you need to look at, 
then we could actually go um, fundraise for these lobbies to get funded so we can then hire the support that we need to then take on these cases of the community and lobby government for change, right? Um, and so that's kind of where I spent my my time getting through this. And um, the education space is a big deal for me. So now in this election, um, I will be uh, the spokesperson for education. Wow. Um, and so I'm quite excited about that, which has... It's it's quite exciting. So it's like looking at these um, polling numbers, right? So we're like on the cusp. I think we're at nine seats and I'm number 10. <laughs> and wow. so I'm just thinking, oh my gosh. And my husband and I were sitting on the couch last night. He's like, what if you actually get to do exactly what you started and be a voice for people? How exciting. Yeah, it's really cool. And I look at my daughter. So my daughter, like going through a school that's fully funded like that, uh, not funded like that, but I mean, like going through a school that fully supports her like that, that doesn't have the funding to do it. The drastic change um, from when she entered school to where she is now is like insane. Like I, I do podcasts with her because which is why I have this whole setup at my house because it helps me. I wasn't recording them. I just sat with her with a microphone and headphones because we, it's the only time I can get her to talk to me, to have a conversation because she can hear herself through her ears. She sounds really good, you know. Um, but the change in Piper from going to a mainstream school where she didn't realize that she was different because she's not different. Like to me, you know, autism just means that you think differently. And actually Piper taught me that. She found out she had autism because she heard me talking about it. And I'd never known how to bring it up to her. And so she first thought it was us that had autism. So she said uh, something about what is autism? And I said, oh, how do you know what that is? And she says, I know what autism is. And I said, what is it? She says, it means you think differently to me. You and dad have autism. <laughs> and I said, you're right. That is exactly correct. Um, and then as we've gone through this journey, you know, she now knows that she has autism, but that's how she, she has understood what it is. And I think that's actually the the best way to put it is that she just thinks differently than me. And a lot of times like she's the way that she, she has a photographic memory. So I can say to Piper, what did you do on August the 2nd, 2000 and you know, 2020, she can say, Oh, well, I was wearing a red shirt and I went to school and I did this and I had this for yeah. lunch. And yeah, like we're just like tapping into like the crazy, these crazy abilities that she has with memory. Yeah. Which is also hard as a parent because I mean, she never forgets anything. You no, know? you can't <laughs> tell porkies. No, not at all. And yeah. so she, how old is she now? Uh, she's 12. Yeah. She's talking. Yeah. She, it's funny. She is, people would say she's talking. She does echolalia, which she has memorized. She All she does all day long is memorize people. She does videos to people and they've sent her videos back in my family and stuff. And she memorizes what they say. And then she creates scripts to uh, change so that she can talk. So this is, she's taught herself how to talk by memorizing what other people say and then figuring out what they mean and changing it. Like, <laughs> for example, she's watching food videos right now. And I made dinner the other night. She said, mm, I love chicken Parmesan. The chicken is so <laughs> moist and the sauce is so creamy. And when I put it in my mouth, it just tastes fantastic. And <laughs> I was like, whose video is that? And she says like, I forget the lady's name. It's something weird. She's like, oh, she travels on cruise ships and tries all these different kinds of food. <laughs> I'm like, so oh, she's, okay. like she's like Chet GP. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So she makes like, I mean, if you want to cook for her, she make you sound like an amazing chef, you know? <laughs> and um, can she read? She has read, been able to read before she could speak. My yeah. Goodness. And you remember everything. I don't. Yeah. And this is the thing. I'm not sure if she understands what she's reading in a book, but she definitely understands when I write so we, before we could talk a lot, I could write to her and she could read it and then she would get it, but she couldn't write back at the time or say anything. So I started to realize that she could, she could read quite early on. Um, and so I would write our schedule down, like first we'll do this, then we'll do this, then we'll do this. And then as we would do it, I would cross them off on a notebook. And we started to notice her um, anxiety go down a lot once she knew what we were doing and it seemed like that was a lot of the issues we had early on was uh it sounds like a lot, a lot of her a lot of her meltdowns were because she didn't know what was next and so she would like freak out because she couldn't you know it was like she would just get um this severe anxiety and so once we started structuring everything which has been really hard because i've just had a baby and so that is really hard to structure your day and the times of everything um mm -hmm. when you have a newborn so um yeah, but no, she's doing great. So great. And is your expectation that she'll be able to live an independent life? I it is my it is my hope. And I, you know, when you have a kid who um or a child who, you know, has autism or any type of a disability, right? Or I just call them different abilities. I don't think there's a disability. I just think there's diff we all have different abilities and we're all skillful at different things, right? And um so I hope that she can, but you know, there is that fear for all parents like, like us, when you have a child, when you, especially when you only have one of what will happen to them when you're not here, because no one's going to love your kid. Like you love your kid, you know, no way. and there's no amount of funding you can throw at an institution where to make sure that they will take care of your no. kid. Like you would take care of your kid. So in this weird way, when we found out we were pregnant, um, cause it was obviously a surprise. We had told we couldn't have any more kids and, um, long story short, surprise. <laughs> um, I remember when we were going through all the shock of that and sitting with my husband, we, um, I, had, I got the blood test done that they give you a blood test and, you know, tell you what, cause I'm for, I'm in my forties. So, um, I did that blood test to see if there were any, um, chromosomal stuff, mainly just for us to know what our next, you know, cause you have one child with autism. It's just like, what are we dealing with in another child, you know? Because we would have to really plan how, you know, how to tackle what kind of support we were going to need and things. So I did that blood test and came back that, you know, the baby was, you know, had nothing um, picked up. But because we did the bloods, it told us if it was a boy or a girl. And so I found out really early, about 14 weeks, that um, we were having a boy. And I remember we found out and I said to my husband, oh, my God, like I was so happy it was a boy. I mean, I would have loved it in any way it came. But I know. I know. to be a boy meant that Piper wouldn't judge this her sister you know like if it was a girl Please. i felt like she would be go oh why is she married or she had children and she had these friends and i i didn't want her to compare herself to a sibling mm -hmm. so when we found out he was a boy i just we just both cried and i just said oh my god i'm so happy like he can protect her when we're gone and you know there's nothing like having a brother um i have two brothers myself and so, um, yeah, that kind of, and, and men, when we've had this little boy, we were worried how she would feel because she's been the only child for so long. And um, man, she has, 
she's growing up. She's just such a huge help. I actually couldn't do this without her. And so when you asked me if I think she'll have an independent life, I really hope so. And I think watching me have a baby and then being there to take care of the baby and helping me and seeing how hard it is, my hope is that one day maybe she will be, you know, fall in love and maybe one day she will have a family. And maybe this is like that hands-on kind of training to help her navigate what that life is like. And and if she doesn't get that, then, um, you know, as long as she's happy, I don't mind. But I just want to make sure someone's got her back because I, you know, because I've got her back. <laughs> and um, yeah, so. Uh, what is autism? Do we know? You know, I autism seems to be an issue in the frontal lobe of, of the brain. Um well, where it affects it, I mean. And it's, I really think it just means that we just think differently, um, you know, socially um, a bit more reserved. And um, yeah, I mean, it's a spectrum. So every, autism is different for every single uh, child and family, which is why I think when we're doing like a one size fits all kind of approach, it doesn't work even when you're just saying, oh, well, it's autism. It's every child is so different on that, on that spectrum, depending on where they, you know, what the makeup is of their diagnosis for Piper. Um, I think it just means that she thinks differently. She needs to be prepared. Um, she needs to feel supported. Like, you know, the coolest thing, is as a mom of, of a girl, because you've got social media, you've got so many girls. So I also have a GM of a youth charity, right? <laughs> um, and so dealing with a lot of youth in Tauranga, a lot of the stuff that's coming through there around eating disorders, and that's coming from social media. And um, I think social media has a huge effect on our youth. Um, and Indeed. so, I'm, yeah, and so I'm working with them on that. And I, I said to my husband the other day, I was, uh, I still have to bathe Piper and everything like that. Um, and so I'm getting her ready for a shower and she looks in the mirror and she says to me, look, I'm growing up. I said, you are. She goes, and I look fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) You do. And I put her in the shower and I said to my husband, like, how cool is that? You know, she's got a positive body image. She is a very positive kid. She, um, she loves everyone, you know, like there, we were at, um, we had a scan out in Papamo, right. When I was pregnant, we were at this cafe Piper, um, this man comes over to our table. He was covered in like tattoos all over his head. And, and it was like, um, they were like logos. It was like meatloaf and uh, it was just a very, you know, uh, different type of like also you couldn't like say he's this type or that type. He just had, you know, logos and a lot of meatloaf stuff all over his tattooed all up. He had big um, piercings all over his cheeks, his head, his face, you know. Um, And he comes over to our table and he was going to borrow a chair, right? And Piper, and sometimes you just don't know because Piper will just say what she thinks. And she doesn't know if it's like socially, politically correct. You know, she just says what she thinks. So this guy comes to the table and she goes, wow, you have lots of stuff on your face. And we're (laughs) like, oh no. And, And he goes, yeah. And she goes, you're so stylish. <laughs> yeah, cool. And we just thought, what a great kid you have turned out to be. Like, how cool is that? Like, she just appreciates someone being like individual and themselves. And she's just like, man, that's so stylish. <laughs> you know, where most people will be like, wow. Oh, oh, you know, like, oh, don't look at him. You know, um, do you look upon her as a blessing? Like, in a sense that, you have a much better appreciation 
of the world and of yourself and of your husband and of your family and of her? She has come to me for a reason. She yes. has incredibly changed my life um, yes. in so many ways. I never would have even, I mean, I, I was talking to Kirsten Murphy about this because she has a special needs son as well. And what we reckon is that when you have a kid with different needs, right, you spend, and if you think about it, I've been doing this since she was two years old, fighting for her. It actually awakens this crazy fight inside you. I would never fight like this for myself. I wouldn't even fight like this for my husband. <laughs> yeah, because you know? yeah, he's an adult, right? Yeah, right. Do it yourself. Um, but, you know, I think that's what this has been for me. And I've seen, I've, I have had a pretty, you know, good life myself, you know, and I've probably taken a lot of things for granted. And what Piper has highlighted to me is that, you know, I've had some dark times with her, um, you know, where I've been like crying, wondering how I'm going to get through this. And I'm pretty sure I had some postnatal depression in there. I definitely almost had a nervous breakdown when she was three and screaming all the time. And, you know, I speak about this on a, a Voices for, um, I think it's called Voices of New Zealand First. I had a big chat about kind of my life into politics. And, you know, I'll never forget sitting in front of my door in my master bedroom. She just screamed all the time. And I just remember crying. And Dan was away at sea and, I just thought, how is this my life? I had, you know, and, um, but she has taught me about resilience. She has taught me that um, for every, everything that she does that feels like really hard, that there's always a reason and I have to uncover what the reason is and then the behavior can stop. And yeah, she's taught me like beauty and things I never would have thought about. Um, I look mm. at people differently. I look at situations differently. Like when I see that, you know, I, I hate seeing us all fighting about different things because, you know, if I look at COVID, for example, right, I remember going through 2020 and I was saying to my husband, the most messed up thing about this is you've got two groups of people, both fearful of something, Right. So you had one group that was so fearful of a virus that they were pro the vaccine. Then you had this other group of people that were so fearful of the vaccine that they weren't worried about the virus. And I think the biggest issue that we had as a government then is, and which is why I never want to see this happen again, is that you basically minimize another group's fear by saying, your fear doesn't matter. This fear is where we're focusing. Instead of saying, hey, look, we've got people who are fearful on both ends. What can we do to support them, right? Mm. And that has been the biggest thing is that we have gone into this whole thing about almost manipulating people based on why they're fearful. And I just think that is a terrible place to be. Whereas like, that reminds me of like, you know, my daughter being afraid of the boogeyman at night or, you know, she needs the lights on and stuff. And me just say, oh, grow up. There's nothing there. And turn the light off. <laughs> What kind of kid do you think that's going to turn out to be, right? Mm. I'm not sure. I mean, because I would never do that. So, but, you know, that's how it feels to me is when I've gone through all these behaviors with Piper, I just, you know, and I think I've, you become a, a expert at um, at behaviors, you know. Does, like, Piper, does Piper give love? Oh, yeah. And that's the one thing that I think broke my heart when she was diagnosed is I remember sitting with my husband saying, I just want a kid to tell me, I just wanted to, I just want to hear her say, I love you. And, um, and man, she is just the most loving kid. You know, she always like with, <laughs> she always thinks I get mad at her because she'll do things. And I just look at her and she'll go, mom, can I have a hug? 
And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, I love you. You're really, you know, you're amazing. And she's like, thanks. That really helps my heart. I love you too. And I just think, God, I never thought we would be here. If someone would have told me where I'd be, where she would be 12 years ago, I never would have believed it. Even when she graduated primary school, I should share this video actually. Um, the principal did a speech and she has to date been one of the hardest kids they've ever had come through that school. But the growth in her and the change in her and who she has become is so different. And and she's really into music, Rodney, which has been amazing for me because it's something that she, it's something that we could connect on. You know, like I used to sing instead of talking to her because music has always been um, a big part of her therapy in life. And, um, you know, even getting her to talk, my husband and I used to, um, we realized that she was speaking. She would always say weird things like, you know, um, she would recite, oh, it was tiger cake. So I was in my office and she would have these huge outbursts and she kept saying, oh no, tiger cake, tiger cake. Oh no. And then she would start crying uncontrollably. And I'm like, tiger cake, what in the you know, what the heck is she talking about? And talking to Dan and he's like, I don't know. And so I'm working in my office one day because I was obviously working from home now and, um, you know, I had Piper and um, I hear on the television, oh no, tiger cake. And I, I get up into my office and I run in there and I'm like, and it's this Daniel Tiger, like a TV show on Nick Jr. He's carrying a cake and it's a tiger because he's a tiger and it falls off and it smashes all over the floor. And I'm like, oh my God, she's trying to tell us that she's sad because the tiger's crying. And But he didn't say, I'm crying, I'm sad. All he said was, oh no, tiger cake, because the tiger cake fell and smashed all over the floor. So my husband and I spent months watching all of these shows that she watches and to figure out how to communicate with her. And so when the tiger cake thing happened, I was like, Piper, you're sad. You're sad. And then she would say, I'm sad. I'm like, yes. And so we started to realize that the things she was saying that didn't make sense to us actually were connected. And she was trying to connect with us, but she was thinking differently than us. So she was learning about these things by watching cartoons. So Dan and I, I mean, look, it's kind of funny because we've we've put on a lot of weight over the years and we would drive in our car and we would be like, you know, hey, you know, come on, Piper Pig, let's go for, you know, and we would start yeah. acting out these different, um, and that's think. how she started to come out. Like even sand, she wouldn't walk on the beach. So my husband drew shapes in it and she came right onto the beach. So it's like figuring out how you can break, like, cause they're all it, there. Their brain isn't it, isn't it? Isn't it an amazing thing? Yeah. That this girl brings so much beauty yeah and insight into the world yeah and would help her classmates absolutely and the children of the school yeah and yet we can openly discriminate Mm -hmm. and give these children a stigma. It's really sad because I look at just, she is the most genuine, sweetest, loving person. So we've mm -hmm. had to leave that school, right? And now she's in a different school. 
and she's regressing and she's becoming, so they've put her in a special unit and I can't get her out of it. And they try to argue with me about, oh, well, she is mainstreamed, but she's actually just in a, you know, and long story short, but I'm going back to the same challenges. And we know I wasn't going to run in this election. A lot of things made me run. One was what happened in 2020. Two was being a voice for other people. Three was trying to figure out ways that government can work better. And I'm just one person, but it is one thing I really want to understand is how things operate. And is there a way that we can create a better model? Um, well, good and, for you. Yeah. And then just looking at, you know, what we're going through with school again and, you know, seeing the amount of families who have reached out to me. And I mean, they add so much value to a school. And I've said this somewhere else, like, I don't know why we expect kids to be able to sit still, you know, for six hours a day when they are consumed with social media and video games. And life is different now. Like we're a very modern world Mm. and education doesn't really seem to be suitable for all of the different children we have coming through. Mm. You know, and it's, you know, if you don't have a diagnosis, sadly, you fall through the cracks. That shouldn't happen. Mm. We need to be looking at how we can help all learners. And Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a lot of education that should be, needs to be done. Now tell me about politics. (laughs) Yeah. 10 MPs, I don't know, what would be roughly that as a percentage, 8 or 9% would get 10 MPs? Yeah, so I and think... And you're in, and I think Christine Murphitt is 11, she's just one below you? Yeah, that's right. So I think for Kirsten, I think we worked it out, it's 8.8%. Wow. So, so yeah. you get in, right? Yeah. Do you ha- have a bottom line, or are you just going to see how it goes? This is a tricky election because I think, and I think it it's will. A tricky election. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, all of this, um, all the media coming to like attack us um, has been, we, we're used to it. Like this has always been, you know, how it goes for New Zealand first. We're always used to the media attacking us and crazy things popping up and people trying to make Winston look like a crook and all this kind of stuff. Right. Um, but I haven't seen it like this. This has been insane. Um, and, but I think what it's highlighting to people, Um, and maybe they didn't realize this in 2017, right? Um, Is that we're actually our own party, right? (laughs) A lot of times we were like, oh, you didn't do what the country wanted. It's like, well, we're still our own party, right? And we have policies that we want to get across for our membership. And if you actually want to be part of that, then you should join New Zealand first. (laughs) And because the policies we have, I mean, look, I'm biased, but they're really good policies. And I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to take them. And so if we can balance either side of it, and that's kind of, we've screwed ourselves in this election because the power of New Zealand First, which is what they always kind of, you know, make fun of New Zealand First for is being the kingmaker. But as a center party, <laughs> we can go with either side, right? Of so that's your, that's, that's your negotiating power, right? You don't negotiate. We're going to go somewhere else. In this election, we ruled out uh, the Labour Party really early, right? Just because we're like, hey, we're not going with them. We don't trust them. They clearly have lied to us. Here's the things, and um, we're not going to go with them. And then obviously months and months later, then Labour's like, we're not going with them, even though we told them that a long time ago. (laughs) So what we've done is we've effectively put ourselves in this position now where national know we have nowhere to go. And so they're saying, oh, hey, you know, if, if they don't negotiate, it's their fault. If we can't form, oh, there could be a second election kind of thing. Um, and and so the attacks are getting a bit interesting. But I hope in this election, what people understand is what, how MM, the power in MMPF used properly, which means 
that you can actually, you should vote on the policies that you like and the policies you want to get. Absolutely. Don't look I'm at the a big, I'm a big supporter of the, the citizen parties. You know, I, I support those parties that are outside parliament yeah. because the existing parties have let us all down. Yeah. Fundamentally, they have let us all down. Yeah. And um, I have to say, personally, I struggle with Mr. Peters, but I love his candidates and I love what he's saying. But yeah. I have, you know, a personal, you know, thing. But that doesn't mean I disregard a political party. And to be honest, New Zealand first following the election, if they were in the kingmaker role, they'd mm. be mad not to talk to Labour just to get leverage over national. Yeah, he won't even go there, I reckon. Uh, well, I know he won't. Um, but that's what I mean is we've put ourselves in that position. And that's because the public is so divided on so many issues right now. Um, will you come, when you're an MP, will you come on our show? Absolutely. How you know, I've never actually be? done these types of things before. I've really enjoyed it. <laughs> Here you go. Well, Erica, if you had three years as an MP, yeah. opposition, crossbenchers, government, support person, whatever, mm. what would you, at the end of that three years, love to be able to say? Well, that's awesome. That's a good question. Um, I would like to say that I've been able to help people in the public establish a better sense of trust with the government. Um, a bit oh, more. my goodness, that's wonderful. Yeah, I think that's what I would like. I mean, look, at the end of the day, end of three years, if if I go in there and I think, oh, Jesus, <laughs> you know, um, and there's really nothing that can be done, uh, you know, I wouldn't run again. Um, but if I genuinely feel like I can make a difference and um, give people a voice and feel heard, and I was talking to Kirsten Murphy about this the other day. I said to her, when we get in, because I'm I'm fairly confident. I feel that we'll get over that eight point eight. I think we're going to get in the double digits. That's my own. I think so. Thinking. Um, I said to her, "A, we need to have offices close together, <laughs> or share an office. I don't know how it works, right?" Um, I said, "But you and I need to start doing our own little chat and start talking to people about what's going on in politics, and to keep people across of what's going on, so that they know what decisions are being made." And so that people, you know, because nobody watches Parliament TV all day long, uh, you know. And you've got the wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Casey Costello. Oh, I love Casey Costello. I love Casey Costello. She now, is amazing. Very you three, you three women. Oh, now, yeah. I'll tell you my story. I went into Parliament not yeah. wanting to go. And? I walked in. And for the first time in my life, I had a feeling this is where I'm supposed to be. Really? Mm. And I loved it. And I loved it because I was a hardcore libertarian. Yeah. And everything about government not working cheered me up because it sort of was a confirmation thing. Mm. And I remember Pam Corkery coming in with me being miserable because she expected government to work once she arrived, you know, with her heart. Yeah. And I realized that it was a bureaucratic, political um, 
nuclear-scale disaster, and it was far worse than I had imagined. But I anticipated only being there three years. And a strange thing happened, because from the get-go, because I sort of didn't care, I could be quite naughty. (laughs) And then everyone tried to get me out. Naughty Rodney. Yeah, because I didn't sort of fit the mold. Yeah. And the more people tried to get me out, I thought, I'm not going. (laughs) 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 And I decided just to ride this thing for as long as I could and try and do something good. But I always felt like I was behind enemy lines because politics isn't decent. It isn't productive. And the people that are tracks aren't citizens. Yeah. Yeah. And I literally look at Chris Luxon and I think it's just his bucket list and John Key. Yeah. And I looked at Helen Clark and it was like her ideological drive to reshape the world Mm. and Jacinda Ardern, Mm. this fervent, it's either like my ego and CV or this tyrannical thing. And funnily enough, when I got dumped, you know, I got voted out by my, I basically came under challenge and I knew that if I didn't go, there'd be an almighty fight and I thought I could win it, but it would destroy the party. So I just left. Oh, wow. One of the happiest moments because I thought I've had a very blessed 15 years. Yeah. And I've seen a lot and now I can get on and live a proper life and be productive because there's nothing productive about being a politician in a sense. And I think we need citizen MPs that come and go and get on with, have a life before and have a life after. Yeah, that's what I think too. I think it's, um, you yes. know, when you've got people that bring so much to the table, there's, you know, experience. But, um, the amazing thing about being a, a politician was I learned a lot about people because I learned to listen. You think that a politician is about talking, it's about listening. And not judging because you sort of, you start off wanting not to upset them and you want their vote and people come into your office. And it's like Clayton Mitchell, you just listen and you listen from their perspective and you help them. And you learn such a lot about people and New Zealand because you go places and people show you things. Yeah. And it's an amazing um, experience and people tell you things that they wouldn't tell another person but they'll tell their local MP or a minister mm. and then you learn about yourself and not all of it's pretty Yeah, because it's very easy to sit on the sideline of politics and say oh, I would never be that stupid right? Yeah, yeah, so true yeah, Do you I know think- people, people, people ask me I was dead against everything to do with COVID. I was against the mandates. Mm. 
I was against the lockdowns. I was against the fear. I did not think it was something to be scared of. Yeah. But people say, oh, well, it would have been great to for you to have been there. And I said, you know the scary thing? I did not know what I would have done if I had been there. Really? No. Yeah. I because, being... because, I'll tell you why. Why? You have to make the decision quickly with inadequate yeah. information. And if everyone around you is making a decision in politics and you're thinking, whoa, what do I do here? Is this something I want to die in a ditch for? Yeah. And, of course, you're getting fed a bureaucratic narrative where I was sitting at home thinking and reading and learning and understanding. I wouldn't have had that opportunity as an MP. I would have just been fed the same rubbish that was fed to Chris Luxon and David Seymour. This is actually what I've highlighted too, is that in the, in the hindsight's a wonderful thing, right? Yes. At that time, every, I mean, all we were seeing were body bags and yeah, we knew our healthcare system. Oh, and and of course the other thing was very quickly, New Zealanders became hysterical. Oh man. And so as an MP, you would be walking <laughs> down the street and being attacked, you know, by your people who you want to vote for you. How could you expose us to this and all? And so it's, it, I honestly, um, so my point about it is time and time again, you find yourself challenged yeah, about who you are. And um, good way to put it. It's a very easy thing to sit at home and say, I think this. It's another thing to day one loudly proclaim it. I got into enormous trouble in my electorate because I never, never accepted the climate change rubbish. Really? Pe- oh, uh, yes. And I mean, I'd be, and you know, a little old lady would come up to me and say, Oh, look, you know, I really like you and your party, Mr. Hyde, but I'm not voting for you. And you'd say, Why not? They said, You don't care about the planet. And you'd say, Oh, I do care about the planet. It's the only one I've got. And no, you don't because, you know, you won't support the emissions trading scheme or you won't support this or, you know, because it became in the nonsense of the narrative. And fortunately, I'd made my mind up strongly about that long before I'd got to the politics and I could stand my ground. But yeah. I was ridiculed and belittled and lost votes. Um, and so because COVID was so bizarre, and 120 MPs walked in lockstep with it, I think, gee, would I have been the only one? You know, I'd love to think I would be, because I yeah. quite like being naughty. There's that bit of me. There's a bit of a genetic makeup. <laughs> I've got a whole lot of, me and Winston share a whole lot of things that only people happen to, and different things. But yeah. I have done things in Parliament where I was the only one. I've often voted one, one vote against and recorded one vote against, and it was me. So I would like to think that I would have the strength to walk into that parliament unvaxxed Mm. and watch them detain me. Yeah. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, it would. I think, um, yeah, man. So, But uh, I don't know, you see. I don't know because I never got, it's easy to say, but I, look, 
I would love to have been that MP. I actually was advising the <laughs> MP and I told them to do it, but they didn't have the strength. And I was thinking I would do it because being an MP wasn't important to me. Yeah. And I'd say, I'd love to see how this plays out because it's yeah. a, I'm not taking the vax. It's a 50-50 thing. It might work out for me politically. It might not. I don't care. But I believe that this is the right thing to do. And I think if you'd attempted to walk into the debating chamber unvaxxed, Trevor Mallard would have had me detained. Wouldn't that would have been interesting to find a, out? It would have been a constitutional outrage because an MP can't be prevented from sitting in the debating chamber. What a, but they all would. They all would. They change the rules. They change the rules. And imagine, imagine the significance of that, but not one MP did it. And I certainly believe I would have, wow, God knows what they were fed because I can't believe. When I was at the protest and I looked up at that parliament, I couldn't understand what any of them are thinking. And Because I, I would surely, surely have gone down and spoken to the protesters, even if I had to put on a hazmat suit because I was scared. I mean, but again, something happened to those people and those journalists. Something happened to them. Yeah. That they were so terrified by the, you know how fear is contagious? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't watch TV or listen to the radio. So I was sitting at home happy. I wasn't scared of anything or anyone. But maybe if I'd been sitting in the beehive or parliament and I'd been fed all these horror stories by supposed experts, maybe, and the fear of my colleagues would have become contagious and made me scared. You know how you can get that scare? Yeah. You know, you're sitting in a movie theater and you're terrified because it's a terrifying movie or a scary moment, but you watch it at home on a DVD and you're not scared. Yeah. Yeah. True. Well, same with laughter, right? Or music. Yeah. You enjoy it more in a crowd. And so maybe if I'd been in that crowd, I would be a different person. I don't know, but there you go. Well, you're going to have a wonderful time. Well, at least I know who to call. <laughs> yeah. When well, I, I don't know. I don't I feel know. Alone. Don't mention to <laughs> don't mention to Mr. Peters that you're my friend. I'm in your well, fan he, club. He'll never know. He will never know. <laughs> we will keep that as our little secret with yeah. uh reality check radio listeners. I will Erica. Yes. Can I thank you so much for coming on our show this morning? Can, Can I, I apologize for talking so much on your show? <laughs> no. To be honest, you rescued me. <laughs> because I get a lot of, particularly from my wife, but also from listeners saying, I interrupt too much. Oh, well. And so I, you were so flow and coherent, and you were telling heart-wrenching stories yeah. about your daughter and finding out in the experience, there was nothing to say. All you, all one can do is listen. Oh, well, thank you. But Ryan. I want to thank you for sharing that with us. Hey, thanks for inviting me. This has been so nice. And you are a wonderful, beautiful human being. Thanks. Your husband must be amazing. He actually is quite amazing. You've got a beautiful, beautiful daughter, I can tell, whom you dearly love and who loves you. And now you've got a little wee baby son. I know, her name is Ziggy. Ziggy. Yeah. Ziggy Stardust. Uh, I know people keep saying that. My husband likes to say Ziggy Marley. <laughs> ah, now, oh, yes. Now, I want you to go off and be an MP. I would and, like that very much. And um, 
I want you to come back on the show and I want you all the very best. And if you don't quite make it because of the electoral gods, yeah, I still would like you to come back on our show and talk about love lobby to. for good. I will. Erica, I Harvey, this is Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We've had a real talk this morning with a mother, with a singer, with a person who's had an amazing life. Hasn't everyone, but we don't realize it because it's just our life. And then you come on and you start talking about it. Everyone's sitting there. Isn't that amazing? And how the world is filled with such beautiful people. We shouldn't allow ourselves to be divided and tribalized because there are people that want to do that to us all the time and stigmatize and label and push aside. And yet we can talk to everyone. Thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, that was something special. Talk soon. This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m.